Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, broadcasting live from the refrigerated studio here at KPDQ. It's freezing in here. I've got goosebumps. I'm shivering. And I'm afraid you're going to hear my teeth chattering at any moment because it's, I don't know what happened. It's, I've had the fan on, off and on, for these last several weeks. And now all of a sudden it's freezing in here. Not that I'm complaining. I'm just making mention of the fact that as a middle-aged woman, it's just borderline intolerable. But I digress. Anyway, glad to have you with us today. James Blend is producing Sam Maupin Engineering, and today we're going to hear a conversation I had with John Ferguson, author of, I should say co-author of Bless, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. Pretty easy, uh, easy things that all of us can do. Well, we are in the midst of a heat wave, although you wouldn't know it from this studio. You'd think we were in the heart of winter, but there is a heat advisory. It's been issued for most of Western Oregon and Southwest Washington from noon today through 10 p.m. tomorrow. So the hot weather continues. Uh, We're in the midst of another hot spell. That's what they're calling it now. Temperatures are likely to reach close to 100 degrees today and possibly tomorrow. The Rose City hit 90 degrees on Monday and Tuesday. The upcoming round of hot weather will peak on Wednesday with high temperatures close to 100. And I'm guessing we're somewhere around that. There's a slight chance of thunderstorms in the Cascades on uh, well tonight. And any cloud cover could take the edge off the, uh, the high heat on Thursday. According to KGW meteorologists, well, the National Weather Service has issued a heat advisory for most of western Oregon and southwest Washington. Um, after a slow start, uh, Portland has uh, had a pretty warm summer so far. Total temperatures have been above average for June, July, and through the first half of August. Portland has uh, recorded 90 days of 90 degree or hotter temperatures so far this year. That's uh, that's pretty impressive. According to weather records, the 30 year average of 90 degree days at Portland International Airport is 15. And we've had more than that already. Last year, Portland hit a record of five uh, 100 degree days in summer, which also happened back in 1941 and 1977. I mention that so that you don't panic. It's not like this is the first time it's ever happened. Well, this week's hot spell will likely not be the last of the summer. The latest outlook for the uh, Climate Prediction Center shows that temperatures over the next month should stay above average. So unless you're here in the uh, studio, in fact, you know, they're opening cooling centers all over the Portland metro area, uh, Beaverton, Portland and surrounding areas. I'm thinking about registering this studio as a cooling center. Um, You might have to bring extra clothing with you because it is icicle worthy temperatures in here. But that said. No more complaining. I did ask Sam to bring a blanket tomorrow, so we'll see what happens. Well, Representative Liz Cheney, as expected, um, did not win her bid for another term in Congress. She admitted Wednesday that she's thinking about running for president in 2024, hours after losing the Republican primary for Wyoming's only House seat to Trump-backed Harriet Hagman in a landslide. Hagman is a political newcomer. She bested the 56-year-old daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney by more than 30 percentage points, with 90 percent of the vote uh, vote counted, handing former President Donald Trump what is perhaps his biggest victory yet this primary cycle by uh, knocking off his chief antagonist in Congress. Asked about her career plans by the Today Show, um, Cheney said 
well, she was initially fairly coy. Uh, we've got to um, uh, get this party back to a place where we've embraced the values and principles on which it was founded, she said. I will be doing whatever it takes to keep former uh, President Donald Trump out of the Oval Office. But when pressed again, Cheney admitted a presidential run was on her mind. Now, interestingly, uh, one of the reasons she lost in her primary was her sole focus had become Donald Trump. And if she decides to run for president, having lost her constituency, her primary focus wouldn't necessarily be the idea that she could be the next president of the United States, but to deprive him of the opportunity to reside in the Oval Office again. I'm not sure who her constituency will be. She's been um, flattered rather significantly by the left because she is at this moment very useful. But if you look back, she was not treated very kindly uh, in her political career once she uh, opposed Donald Trump and served on the J6 committee. She suddenly became the the media darling. But if she understands history and watches what's happened politically here over the last several decades, it will not last. Well, following her 37 point defeat in her primary nomination bid for Congress, the media, prima, uh, primarily the left wing media, has been cheering her as the GOP's Joan of Arc and fawning over the fact that she is anti-Trump. Again, she's useful for the moment. Well, according to a new study from the Media Research Center, that journalistic love being shown to Cheney is entirely dependent on how useful that person is to the liberal press. In the past, the news and entertainment media, they despised the toxic daughter of Dracula. That's how they referred to her, freely using sexist language to mock the child of Dick Cheney. In 2010, then MSNBC host Ed Schultz decided not to judge Cheney on her merits and record, but rather based on sexist language. In 2013, MSNBC host Chris Haynes flat out hated Cheney, unlike uh, today, talking about Cheney, um, her failed run for the Senate in July of 2013. He said, Ms. Cheney is truly one of the most odious presences uh, in American politics today, displaying the casual sexism of it's okay for Republican women. Haynes also dismissed the female Cheney because of her father. In 2016, an episode of the Fox broadcast, and this is not even a news and information program, uh, Scream Queens, one of the characters, recounted a hunting trip and shooting Liz, Liz Cheney in the face. So if she believes that a, t- a corner has been turned and she's now a media darling, that she will garner support from uh, Democrat voters, she has a uh, another thing coming. And again, if she follows what has happened with other short-term media darlings um, on the right, uh, then she might think uh, twice about moving forward politically as a presidential candidate, unless, of course, her primary goal is to prevent Donald Trump from returning to the Oval Office. Meanwhile, the vice president said he'd consider testifying before the January 6th committee. The former vice president on Wednesday said he would do just that if invited. Uh, the vice president was answering a question after the New Hampshire Institute of Politics, po- Politics and Eggs breakfast, when he made the remark, if there was an invitation to participate, I would consider it, the, vice, the former vice president said. But you heard me mention the Constitution a few times this morning. Under the Constitution, we have three co-equal branches of government and any invitation to be directed to me. I would have to reflect on the unique role I was serving as the vice president. It would be unprecedented in history for a vice president to be summoned to testify on Capitol Hill. But as I said, I don't want to prejudge. So if there's ever any formal invitation rendered to us, we would give it due consideration. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I went to, got some hot tea during the break, and I've uh, asked Sam if he would look into a portable fire pit. We could just put it right here in the middle of the table. We could have open flames, and that might generate enough heat to get through the rest of the show. We'll find out if the building has any problems with that. Anyway, it really is free. You know, we could have, there's a deli downstairs. We could see if they need storage space to hang meat because it's just that cold. We could sell ice cream out of the, out of the free. We could sell it to other members of the building. But I'm just going to suffer in silence. Oh, sorry. Too late. Anyway, let's return to the news and the headlines. By the way, coming up in the second hour of the program, John Ferguson, his book is simply titled Bless. Well, Sarah Palin, a name you haven't heard in a long time, former Republican vice presidential nominee and former Alaska governor. She advanced in the primary on Tuesday in a bid to win the state's sole House seat in November. Well, the top four candidates advanced regardless of party due to Alaska's new election system. It's kind of interesting. Palin will face Democrat Mary Patola. Uh, Republican Nick Begich and one other still unknown candidate in the general election. Palin was endorsed by Donald Trump when she launched her campaign, who said wonderful patriot Sarah Palin just announced that she's running for Congress. And that means there will be a true America first fighter on the ballot. End quote. That's from uh, from Trump. Palin was governor of Alaska from 2006 to 2009 and was the Republican vice presidential nominee in 2008, sharing a ticket with uh, Senator John McCain. I should say the late senator. The candidates are also competing in a special general election to fill the remaining months of the late representative Don Young's term, which ends in January. The former representative was the longest serving member of the current Congress and died at the age of 88 in March. The special election used um, ranked choice voting. It's an election method. It's approved by Alaska residents in 2020 in ranked choice. And that's ranked, not rank. It means two very different things. Voters rank their preferred candidates and the candidates are then eliminated one by one based on the number of first choice preferences they receive. Well, the result of the special election will not be known at least until the 31st of this month when the results will be tabulated. So they have to wait a long time. Palin bashed the ranked choice voting system in a statement issued on the election night, which might not be a great idea since you're running to represent the people who voted it in. Anyway, Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski, who has held her um, Senate seat since 2002, advanced to the Senate November election. She was one of seven Republican senators to convict Trump of indictment and insurrection. Um, I should say incitement. Murkowski will be the com- uh, competing against Trump endorsed Republican Kelly Chewbacca in November and two other candidates, uh, which are too close to call Murkowski and Subaka uh, were neck and neck in the primary with Murkowski getting 42 percent of the vote and her opponent getting 41.8 percent. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in November with this uh, new voting system there. Well, Democrats passed about three point eight trillion dollars in spending on their top agenda items since President Biden took office, something they believe will help them in the 2022 midterms. But the Republicans say 
as the um, usual tax and spend legislation that will harm the economy. The American people will decide which version of the truth they believe is correct. Democrats, even in this tough situation, polarized 50-50, can actually get things done. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said after Democrats passed their Inflation Reduction Act this month. They're going to see Democrats are actually getting things done that matter to them, mainstream things that matter to folks. No matter what they call their legislation, Democrats in Washington are addicted to spending your money. That's a quote from Chad Gilmartin, a spokesperson for House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Uh, He said when Democrats said their multi-trillion dollar spending bill would rescue the economy, it did the opposite by fueling historic inflation and imperiling every family's budget. Well, that's the landscape in which we will uh, be electing uh, representatives and U.S. senators Come November, I hope we are thoughtful, prayerful, careful. We do our homework and we uh, do the best that we can in making selections on that ballot. We're electing a governor here in the state of Oregon. And for the first time in a very long time, we have a Republican on the ballot that could actually win. We have two Democrats on the ballot, one of whom has walked away from her party, but essentially has served uh, all of her political life as a Democrat in the Oregon legislature who just qualified for the ballot. So lots of choices to be made, and it requires not just uh, getting a ballot at the last minute, uh, looking at a voter guide and saying, yeah, that one and that one. We need to listen a little bit. We need to be prayerful. We need to pay attention to what's being said to know what are the primary issues I should be thinking about here in the state of Oregon or in Washington? What are the national concerns? And I hope we'll all take, I'm not talking about a part-time job, but I hope we'll all take a little bit of time to become educated enough that when we cast our ballot, we've really done the best that we can. Because the truth is you elect a politician who has a platform. They've said this and that and that, and that's the expectation that we've all had when we elect them. And it turns out, well, they didn't quite mean what they said. So there's where you really need to pray. I know what's being said. Lord, help me to have wisdom and discernment beyond the words that I'm hearing, the campaign ads and uh, the website. So anyway, I hope we're all taking this seriously. We always like to say this is the most consequential election of my lifetime. Well, they're all consequential. They all have the potential to carry Uh, Very significant decision making. And, you know, we're in the middle of a war in Ukraine. We've got um, escalating tension with Russia, Iran and China. There's a lot going on. And, of course, the decisions that will be made by this administration and this Congress uh, carry significant import. Now, I just want to remind you of what you already know. So I don't want to insult anyone, but we don't rely on uh, political decision makers to rest our hope and Uh, to find our peace, our our resource and our provision doesn't come primarily from those sources. They are held accountable by God. They're appointed by him to exercise some authority, but we need to put them in their proper place under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So when we're worried about things that we rightly should be worried about, it's in the context of a follower of Jesus, someone whose citizenship is in heaven and as an ambassador from another, uh, another place and another sovereign, we need to exercise wisdom. Um, and so that's that's our charge. And to remember that our neighbors, many of whom are terrified about the future, they don't have the assurances and the knowledge that we have of the one who holds all things together. So it presents a, a tremendous opportunity to give hope and to live in peace. But it also uh, is a challenge for us to do well with this um, this opportunity. We have to be good stewards over the authority uh, we've been given in this constitutional republic. 
Well, President Biden reinstated the largest oil and gas lease sale in U.S. history, essentially steamrolling the need for environmental review by signaling the Inflation Reduction Act into law on Tuesday, or rather signing. While the Inflation Reduction Act includes several green energy provisions opposed to the fossil fuel industry, the bill also orders the Department of the Interior to take a series of steps to boost fossil fuel production on federal lands and waters. Contradiction? Well, kind of. The legislation specifically requires that the department uh, reinstate lease sale 257, a massive offshore oil and gas sale spanning 80.8 million acres across the Gulf of Mexico within 30 days of enactment. There should be no questions about the issuance of leases from Gulf of Mexico lease sale 257. National Ocean Industries Association President Eric Melito says the legislation is clear and mandatory. Congress has acted. The leases must be issued and the lawsuit uh, must be dismissed, he continued. Well, in November, the Department of the Interior held the lease sale, which generated more than $191 million in bids for 308 tracts from fossil fuel companies, despite criticism from several prominent Democrat lawmakers and environmental groups. However, a federal court blocked the sale in January, ruling in favor of a coalition led by Friends of the Earth and the Sierra Club that argued the Biden administration failed to properly analyze the climate impacts of the sale. Well, the administration opted against appealing the court's decision in March. Not surprisingly, the American Petroleum Institute, a group representing large segments of the fossil fuel industry, intervened and appealed on behalf of the companies involved in the sale. Well, the case remains before a federal appeals judge. The API and several other industry groups penned a letter to House leadership last week, and they're urging them to reconsider the legislation. The groups took particular issue with the corporate minimum tax, natural gas uh, tax and tax on crude oil included in the bill. In addition, several prominent Democrats who previously slammed new fossil fuel leasing on federal lands and waters voted in favor of the Inflation Reduction Act, despite their criticism of lease sale 257. So essentially, it's something of a mess that is still being sorted through, but will need to be done sooner rather than later. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show in the frigid temperatures of the studios of KPDQ. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with John Ferguson. Bless. Everyday ways to love your neighbor and change the world. We'll also take a look at why the Justice Department is investigating the Southern Baptist Convention. Is it just a matter of course, or are there reasons to be concerned that they've taken up this particular case? Well, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau took to social media to celebrate the president's signing of the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, why would he be excited? Well, he's boasting that the American legislation will be a win for Canadians. It's official. POTUS signed legislation that will include Canada in a new tax incentive for electric vehicles purchased in the U.S., Trudeau said on Tuesday on Twitter. This is good news for Canadians, for our green economy and for our growing EV manufacturing sector. Well, Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act. We've already talked about that. With this law, the American people won and the special interest lost, the president said. Well, Canadian officials celebrated the new law as a windfall and its green energy manufacturing sector will benefit, which um, 
will also benefit Americans receiving tax credits for purchasing electric vehicles made in North America, a fact not lost on critics of the legislation. Uh, legislation, rather, using your taxes to boost the uh, Canadian automobile manufacturing sector is not going to reduce inflation in the United States. But it's quite a gift to Canada, the same country that sued the U.S. and the World Trade Organization to get us to remove uh, country of origin labels from our beef and pork. A reminder from Representative Thomas Macy, a Republican out of Kentucky. Hmm. Well, the number of migrant encounters at the southern border this fiscal year has now exceeded two million, a number that marks a new record as well as a glaring sign of the enormous and ongoing crisis facing agents, officials and communities at the border. Customs and Border Protection announced Monday that there were 199,976 migrant encounters in July alone, taking the total so far this uh, fiscal year to 1.946 million encounters. The uh, Customs and Border Patrol sources uh, said that since then, that number has now surpassed the two million mark, a milestone not hit before at the border. Last year, in the record setting year that saw more than one point seven million encounters, agents had made approximately one point two million encounters at that time. Well, the director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on Wednesday announced a reset that will focus on making the organization quicker at responding to new health threats amid criticism of its response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Speed was not primarily the issue that was being criticized, but the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, told the agency staff about the changes, which include internal staffing moves and steps to speed up data releases. For 75 years, CDC and public health have been preparing for COVID-19, but I would say we're flat-footed when it actually arrived. She went on to say, and uh, in our big moment, our performance did not reliably meet expectations, uh, she said in a statement obtained by The Washington Post. My goal is a new public health action oriented culture at CDC that emphasizes accountability, collaboration, communication and timelines, end quote. Well, the changes are a CDC initiative and were not directed by the White House or other administrative officials. Now, they have lost a lot of credibility And while these initiatives are probably going to be very helpful, they're not addressing areas where they specifically fell short and lost the confidence of much of the American population. Let's hope that will be a part of the calculus moving forward with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Well, several Republican lawmakers and conservative pundits took to social media Tuesday night to share their thoughts about Representative Liz Cheney, one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach former President Trump. She lost her primary election in Wyoming. Cheney, who currently serves as vice chair of the House January 6th committee investigating the Capitol protests, lost the Wyoming primary election to Republican Harriet Hegman, a Trump-backed primary challenger. Conservative lawmaker and defense hawk immediately came under verbal attack from Trump himself and his allies. And in May of last year, she was ousted from her number three House GOP leadership position. Shortly after it became apparent that Cheney would suffer defeat, she was losing by more than 30 percentage points when she delivered a concession speech. Several pundits and congressional Republicans took to Twitter to celebrate the news and congratulate her opponent. In another defend, uh, rather defund disaster, squad congressman who called policing a cruel and inhumane system sees crime spike in his district. It seems cruel and inhumane when his constituents suffer at the hands of those who are not being held accountable for their crimes. Calling it anti-science, a school district is being criticized for baffling a memo on masking rules for the upcoming school year. 
Hmm. The former Alaska governor has advanced a general election, or rather to the general election, after the primary win in the congressional race there. And in the fight for Florida, Democratic candidate Representative Val Demings uh, is leading GOP Senator Marco Rubio in Florida's tight U.S. Senate race, while Nikki Freed uh, tops opponents as most likely candidate to challenge Governor Ron DeSantis in the November midterms, according to a new poll. The University of North Florida released the results of a survey Tuesday that revealed Florida voters' choices for the state's gubernatorial and Senate primary races, while also looking ahead to November. Demings, the former chief of police in Orlando and current congresswoman was head of the August 23rd Democratic Senate primary with 80 percent support. When Florida voters were asked about November's midterm Senate race, Demings came out on top against Rubio with 48 percent support to Rubio's 44 percent. In a moment of truth, Senator Joe Manchin has admitted inflation reduction. The act, well, it won't tame inflation for Americans anytime soon. Responding to social justice teacher, a mom's lawsuit claims students were forced to pick cotton to get a real-life experience of slavery. I'll just hold my thoughts on that subject. Differing viewpoints, Chris Hayes proclaims President Biden's signing of the Inflation Reduction Act a huge day for the country, the planet, for everyone. Wow, I'm sure the people of Ukraine are thrilled. Although it is titled the Inflation Reduction Act, nonpartisan analysts suggest it will have a barely perceptible impact on inflation and not anytime soon. And Hayes notably did not tout that aspect of the bill with a hidden agenda. Cut ties with a Palestinian journalist, this is the New York Times, who had contributed to the paper's recent coverage of the escalated Israel-Gaza conflict. Last week, the pro-Israel media watchdog group Honest Reporting put a spotlight on the social media history of uh, Fadi Hanona, a freelance producer and fixer who was credited by the Times in multiple stories published this month. According to screenshots preserved by the Honest Reporting editor, Hanona repeatedly espoused anti-Semitic rhetoric, expressed hostility toward Israel and spoke favorably about Adolf Hitler. I read some of those posts and they are beyond what you might imagine. Uh, they're worse, is what I'm suggesting. On a roll now, the New York Times style piece celebrates the return of Aviator Joe sunglasses, trying to uh, put the moniker on the current president to add a little luster to his reputation. Tucker Carlson points out that there's a reason the public's confidence in the FBI has plummeted. And Sean Hannity says the DOJ and FBI simply want you to close your eyes, cover your ears and trust them completely. President Biden officially signed the inflation reduction bill. Liz Cheney lost her seat to the Trump endorsed Harriet Hagman. Former President Trump's popularity among Republicans has spiked due to the FBI raid. And CBS Evening News alleges the FBI did not take Trump's passports. Is the legacy media ever embarrassed or angry that it consistently gets some fed false information and repeats it verbatim in order to push the Uh, narrative they have chosen? Well, the answer clearly is, well, not yet. Ukraine special forces struck an ammo depot in Russian-controlled Crimea. The Washington Post reports that Ukrainian special forces struck down inside the Russian-occupied Crimean Peninsula for the second time in less than a week on Tuesday, blowing up an ammunition depot and also possibly an Air Force base, according to Russian media and Ukrainian government officials. Just a reminder that the war in Ukraine continues. President Biden has forgiven an additional four billion dollars of student loan debt, bringing the total up to thirty two billion dollars, adding to the deficit and shifting the debt 
to taxpayers. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break, but we'll continue to wind our way through the news from the Icebox, also known as the KPDQ Studios. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The question is, why is the Justice Department investigating the Southern Baptist Convention? We'll talk more about that later in the second hour of today's program. I'll also share a conversation with John Ferguson, author of Bless. Well, Britain's Royal Air Force has begun rejecting applications from white men to meet their diversity goals. They don't care about your ability to do the job just as long as you look a certain way. Are they uh, sacrificing national security by rejecting a whole swath? Um, it's a it's an open question. Germany is reconsidering a closure of the last three nuclear facilities in the wake of the energy crisis. Germany plans to postpone the closure of the country's last three nuclear power plants. That is, it braces for a possible shortage of energy this winter after Russia throttled gas supplies to the country, said German government officials. And while temporary, the move would mark the first departure from the a policy initiated in the early 2000s to phase out nuclear energy in Germany and which had uh, over time become enshrined in political consensus. The decision has yet to be formally adopted by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's cabinet and would likely require a vote in parliament. It'll be interesting to see how the world's uh, energy source shifts over time, given the current configuration. Governor DeSantis is focusing on veterans and first responders to address the educator shortage in Florida. And Dodge plans to drop the iconic muscle cars as part of their transition to EV, electric vehicles. Dodge will discontinue its gas-powered Challenger and Charger muscle cars at the end of next year, marking the end of an era for the brand as it starts to transition to electric vehicles. Since uh, being resurrected in the mid To late 2000s, the Charger and the Challenger names made popular in the 60s and 70s have been stalwarts for Dodge and popular vehicles for new generation of gearheads. While the automaker simultaneously announced a forthcoming lineup of seven gas-powered, heritage-influenced commemorative models for 2023, saying it was uh, seizing the opportunity to celebrate in true over-the-top Dodge style. Well, we'll see what that ends up looking sounding and driving like we have reached record illegal immigration totals for fiscal 2022 chinese communists are waging war using fentanyl last month alone u.s customs and border protection seized over 2,000 pounds of fentanyl being illegally transported into the country that amount of fentanyl set a new monthly record uh, outdoing the previous record set in april by over 60 percent To put things in perspective, that amount of fentanyl is enough to kill every single American and then some. Of course, this amount is that um, which the Border Patrol has seized. So who knows how much more has made it into the country undetected. And those behind this flood of fentanyl hitting the U.S. are the Chinese communists who are the drug cartel's primary supplier. From China's perspective, this is a war in which it is effectively engaging in killing tens of thousands of Americans annually. And the Biden administration's open border policy has only exacerbated the problem and given them greater opportunity. Facebook is joining Twitter to censor 2022 midterm campaigns. It comes as no shock that Meta, Facebook's parent company, has joined Twitter in its effort to censor political speech just as the midterm campaigns are hitting the home stretch, Using the talking points of seeking to prevent misinformation, Meta will be targeting misleading narratives for the suppression on its 
platforms, which includes not only Facebook, but also Instagram and WhatsApp. Meta explains that it has put together a dedicated team focused on the 2022 midterms to help combat election and voter interference. Furthermore, the social media giant admits that it is uh, colluding with the federal government to censor speech. We're working with federal government partners, including the FBI and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, as well as local and state election officials and industry peers, to make sure we're all preparing for different scenarios. End quote. Well, Meta notes that it will be using 10 fact-checking out, uh, outfits to help it address viral misinformation. Modern America is looking more and more like 1984 every passing day. And it's a sad thing to see. Pennsylvania Democrat Senate nominee John Fetterman voted to free a convicted murderer who killed an 18-year-old for heroin money. And a new Georgia poll is bad news for Stacey Abrams and worse for Raphael Warnock. Yet the new poll out today shows that Stacey Abrams, who is polling eight points behind Governor Brian Kemp, can't do any better than about 45 percent in the polls. Today has her at 43.5 percent. The problem is that Warnock is only able to pick up the same amount of support. What's worse for Warnock is that Herschel Walker hasn't even hit his ceiling yet. The Phillips Academy poll shows that Warnock is trending downward from his high of 50 percent in the beginning of July, while Walker is continuing to trend upward from recent polling. Warnock is at 43.6 percent to Walker's 45.2 percent. Abortion may tip opinion polls, but it's not sinking Governor Brian Kemp's lead. Democrats are celebrating a climate win, but fewer Americans say that they're about uh, they care about climate change than just three years ago. President Biden returned from vacation, signed the spending bill and headed off to another vacation. Attorney General Merrick Garland's stature has shrunk as he doggedly pursues the former president, Donald Trump. Ex-New York Governor Andrew Cuomo won a lawsuit over his $5.1 million pandemic response book deal. And Oregon Democratic Senator Ron Wyden warned early in the pandemic that wealthy business owners could abuse the Paycheck Protection Program, often referred to as PPP. Well, financial disclosures suggest his wife did just that. Nancy Bass Wyden, the multimillionaire's uh, millionaire owner of New York's Strand Bookstore, received $2.7 million in Paycheck Protection protection program loans between 2020 and 2021 and nonetheless went on to lay off 180 employees. Small businesses were eligible for the federally um, uh, forgiven loans on the condition that they use a majority of the funds to keep employees on the payroll. In October of 2020, Bass Wyden told CBS News that Strand would not rehire many of those employees and that the store would have to give back part of the loan due to the forgiveness rules. But as of September of last year, the federal government had forgiven both loans, ProPublica reported. The Small Business Administration declined to comment and the Strand did not respond to uh, the Washington Free Beacon's requests for comments on the loan. Smith & Wesson is pushing back on lawmakers who blame guns Uh, Smith uh, and Wesson uh, uh, Brands president and CEO Mark Smith has pushed back against a House oversight panel that subpoenaed the gun owners in August uh, the 2nd, to be more precise, asking for documents related to the manufacture and sale of AR-15 style semi-automatic rifles. Mr. Smith declined to respond to the panel. Now he's having his say. 
saying this, a number of politicians and their lobbying partners in the media have recently sought to disparage Smith & Wesson. Some have had the audacity to suggest that after they have vilified, undermined, and defunded law enforcement for years, supported prosecutors who refuse to hold criminals accountable for their actions, overseen the decay of our community's mental health infrastructure, and generally promoted a culture of lawlessness, Smith & Wesson and other firearm manufacturers are somehow responsible for the crime wave that's predictably resulted from this destructive policy. Mr. Smith said in a written statement released on Monday. Eric Trump said he's going to reveal the FBI raid surveillance tape at some point in the near future. Transgender people protected from discrimination under the Americans with Disabilities Act. An appeals court has now ruled. Again, the act has says nothing about the subject, but a judge has just decided. On this day in history, 1863, federal batteries and ships began bombarding Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor during the Civil War, but the Confederates managed to hold on despite several days of pounding. 1943, the Allied conquest of Sicily during World War II is completed as U.S. and British forces enter Messina. 1978, the first successful transatlantic balloon flight ends as Maxie Anderson, Ben Abruzzo, and Larry Newman land their Double Eagle II outside Paris. 1982, the first commercially produced compact discs, a recording of ABBA's The Visitors, are pressed at a Phillips factory near Hanover, West Germany. 1985, more than 1,400 meatpackers walk off the job at the George A. Hormel and Company's main plant in Austin, Minnesota, in a bitter strike that lasted just over a year. 1987, Rudolf Hess, the last member of Adolf Hitler's inner circle, died in Spandau Prison at age 93 of an apparent suicide. 1996, the Reform Party announces Ross Perot has been selected to be its first ever presidential nominee, opting for the third party's founder over challenger Richard Lamb. 1998, President uh, Bill Clinton gives grand jury testimony via closed circuit television from the White House concerning his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. He then delivers a TV address in which he denies previously committing perjury, admits his relationship with the former aide was wrong and criticizes Kenneth Starr's investigation. 2009, President Barack Obama addresses the veterans of foreign war in Phoenix, chastises the defense industry and Congress for wasting tax dollars with doctrine and weapons better suited to fight the Soviets on the plains of Europe than insurgents in the rugged terrains of Afghanistan. And 2018, on this day in history, Tesla CEO Elon Musk, in an interview with the New York Times, says he's been overwhelmed by job stress and admission that pushes down the stock value of the electric car company and brings pressure on its board to take action. Shares in Tesla tumble about 9%. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, President Trump says his administration is giving major consideration to designating the Antifa movement a terrorist organization. As the city of Portland, my home, was preparing for dueling weekends, protests between right wing demonstrators and far left and the far left group. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. And then John Ferguson, author of Bless. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. So glad to have you with us. 
Well, if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's that people and relationships are important. I think all of us have come to that conclusion. Well, during the months of isolation, thousands of Americans were left feeling anxious and depressed and lonely, showing us that God created us to be in community with each other. Well, to make matters worse, the 2020 U.S. presidential election left us more divided than ever before. But in this broken world, we need to intentionally, those of us who are followers of Christ, invest in each other and serve our neighbor as Christ did. Well, 2021 must be the year to love each other well. Well, my next guest and his co-author, who happens to be his brother, uh, John Ferguson, um, has written a book that will help us in that regard. Well, Dave and John Ferguson, uh, brothers, church thought leaders and authors, want friendship to be easy. As pastors of Community Christian Church in the Chicago area, they've seen the opportunity for their congregation to invest in others around them as they become more isolated in society. Well, the book is simply titled, Bless, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. Well, John and Dave provide a step-by-step guide that encourages Christians to love others, to share the good news of the gospel, and change the world. And it all starts with one easy saying, and that is, bless. Well, my guest is uh, John Ferguson. He is co-founding pastor of Community Christian Church in Chicago. He serves as one of its uh, lead teaching pastors and provides leadership in new ventures. He has also helped uh, co-launch New Thing and serves on the board of directors for Exponential Conference. He joins us to talk about the book he co-authored with his brother, Dave Ferguson. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Looking forward to it. This is such a timely book, given where we have been and where we're headed as we move away ever so slowly from uh, this pandemic that has forced us to isolate ourselves from one another. It's interesting to me as I walk through a grocery store, for example, that rather than look one another in the eye and smile, <laughs> uh, we tend to kind of move away from each other. We've been trained to to be repelled by the presence of others. This book is so timely because it helps us to consider what we're called to do as Christians. And you draw our attention in the introduction to Mark 12, verses 30 and 31, in which we're told that loving our neighbor as ourselves uh, eight times throughout Scripture and by Jesus himself um, is such a significant part of what it means to reflect the character of Christ out into the culture. Uh, thanks so much, Georgine. I think you're, you're absolutely right, uh, particularly in these times when you know, we are more divided. We seem to be more separated. People are suspicious of one another for a variety of reasons. Uh, we need to follow exactly what you said, what Jesus said. That's love God and love others. It's the greatest commandment. He gave us two when we asked for one, but it's still all about loving God and loving others. And our hope is that this book really is almost a, a remedial course on what it means to be a good friend. Uh, I yeah. mean, Jesus was known as a friend of sinners, right? Wouldn't that be great if we were known as simply good friends? And then over the course of time, that can give us the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and help them find their way back to God and Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. I think some of us, we assume that, well, Jesus had an easier time of it, or maybe the sinners in his day weren't as challenging as they are in our day. <laughs> some, somehow we excuse ourselves um, because we don't know quite how to approach what our heart really longs for, and that is to develop relationships with people who don't yet know Christ, to share the best news we've ever heard and have benefited by, but we just don't know where to start. Bless really provides us with a blueprint and how to begin that and to reflect what Jesus reflected in his ministry on earth. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're speaking my language for sure. It's interesting, um, in, in working on the book, Georgine, George Barna, we discovered, led a really interesting study, and George Barna probably knows more about church life in America than just about anybody else, where he did a study and asked friends and neighbors what they value 
mm. and a person with whom they would talk about spiritual matters to. So they basically talked to all of our friends out there that we would like to reach with the gospel. They wanted to find, they said this, they said they would like to see three qualities in someone that they would talk about spiritual matters to. Number one, they want someone who will listen without judgment. They want someone who will allow them to draw their own conclusions. And then they want someone who can speak confidently about their own story. That's all they want. You know, we think somehow it's our job to convince or coerce or cajole. It's our job to be friends, love people the way Jesus loved people. And then let's let God's spirit do the work of convicting and converting. Well, and I appreciate you make it very clear the role that you and I are called to play and the role that God through his Holy Spirit is called to play. We sometimes take on more responsibility than is given to us, and that makes a a frightening prospect out of just engaging in uh, friendship and community with people who don't yet know Christ. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I couldn't. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And Georgina, I don't know what your experience was growing up, but, you know, I and I think a lot of Christians probably feel this way, like this undue sort of kind of kind of pressure to do it a certain way. And mm-hmm. to, and, it, and it's all about a verbal witness. Now, I'm not saying that proclamation or verbal witness isn't important, but I think sometimes we get kind of the, the cart ahead of the horse, if you will. And if we will lay the groundwork, and I think these blessed practices do that, I think we'll find that we'll have an opportunity for a verbal witness and even a more powerful verbal witness than if we begin with the verbal witness. Yeah, and that is so much of the example that we see Jesus set for us. And let's talk about the five blessed practices because it's blessed period, L period, E period. What are the blessed practices uh, that are everyday ways that you and I can share the love of Christ with our neighbor? And as you point out, change the world. Sure, Georgina, I can do that. I'll, I'll give you the five real quick. And then if you want, we can kind of dig in a little bit deeper on uh, one or two of them later yeah. on. But it begins with the letter B in bless, and it's begin with prayer. Now, I know that's a little bit of a stretch from an acronym standpoint, but it's begin with prayer. It gets better. Trust me. And keep <laughs> in mind, these are all things that Jesus did. So we didn't just make this up. OK, Jesus blessed people and he began with prayer. We see that over and over again in Scripture. Uh, the second one, then the L is for listen. And what we found is, and I think we all sort of intuitively know this, that, you know, listening is one of the most profound and meaningful gifts we can give someone to intentionally listen to them, their dreams, their hopes, their fears. So begin with prayer, listen. And then the third one is my favorite. It's eat. We share meals. You look at the life of Christ. He shared meals with people all the time. It was a great way for him to, to connect with others and, and let them know that he loved them. So we begin with prayer. We listen. We eat. The first S in blessed then is serve. I mean, Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Right, to serve, right, yeah. So it's begin with prayer, listen, eat, serve. And then the final S in blessed then is story. And we're convinced that if we will take the time to, to pray for the people that we feel like God has put in our path, that we want to bless, that we want to share the gospel with, we will listen to them, we'll share meals with them, get to really know them. We'll then know how we can best serve them. And then finally, at some point, we'll probably have an opportunity to share our story and hear their story and then let the Holy Spirit do its work. And hopefully they'll come to know what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Mm. So what you're describing is a relationship that is built over time, not 15 minutes in which you have to spew out everything you know about the gospel and hope that they will fall to their knees and <laughs> and repent. Wow, Georgina, if I didn't if I didn't know better, I, I, I you sound like you have experience in some of those other methods. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know I do, and, and they didn't work that well. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, your, as I mentioned earlier, your timing is impeccable. Given the fact that the uh, pandemic and the isolation that we've experienced, I think, has given us a longing to be together again. And what a tremendous opportunity we have to reintroduce ourselves, perhaps, to our neighbors uh, and to begin a relationship with people that we may have been in contact with for a long period of time. But we now have a good excuse to to build a relationship on these principles that will lead ultimately to sharing what's most important and, and deeply valued with the people that we learn to care about. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right on. Yep. I, and again, what's interesting is, and we could talk about this too, but what we found is some of these principles you could actually do during the pandemic, even though there mm-hmm. was social and mask wearing, but certainly coming out of it, I think where you're right, um, more than anything, I think we're finding is that people are longing for connection, you know, content. We've always been able to get content, right? I mean, that's available anywhere on the internet, all sorts of places, but connection, okay, Zoom and Skype are great. However, true connection, uh, true friendships, the kind that bless one another are, are invaluable. And I think we do have an opportunity in this space and time coming out of the pandemic, like maybe we haven't in, in years or decades uh, to really, you know, kind of, kind of put our best foot forward and show the the world what Jesus sort of looks like with with skin on, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And I mentioned to our listeners before our conversation that you have an appendix blessed during a pandemic. So there's some great um, ways that we can connect with people while we're on our way out of the pandemic. But we don't have to wait until things are completely clear. Now, we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to continue my conversation with a co-author of uh, this important book, John Ferguson, along with his uh, brother, Dave, Bless Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with John Ferguson, who has written a very timely book simply titled Bless Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. I thought it was rather interesting that the first chapter. Uh, in the book is why does sharing the good news feel so bad? And you touched on this just a little bit with uh, some of the surveys that have been done to let us know what the the world outside of the church is thinking and is looking for from us. But let's address that. Why does sharing the good news feel so bad? Is it because our approach is flawed? Oh, it's a great question, Georgine. I, I think with the best of intentions, at times we'd have to admit that our approach um, was, is, or has been. <laughs> Uh, somewhat flawed. And, and I think, again, it goes back to this idea that many of us grew up with and, and continue to um, is continue to be perpetuated in some circles, I think, that you know it is up to us to coerce or convince or cajole people. And we kind of take the Holy Spirit out of it. And when in reality, I think what, what we need to do is learn to really, what does it look like to bless people, to love people, and then look for the opportunity then to, to share a gospel witness with them. And, you know, when I was first trained in evangelism, you know, it was these two diagnostic questions. We'd knock on doors and we'd, we'd, Mm. you know, pummel people with these questions immediately. And I'm not saying at all that there wasn't some good done with that. There was some really good that came out of it, but I also think there was probably some harm. And I think it also left a lot of your average everyday Christ followers who really do want to help their neighbors and their loved ones get to know Jesus, understand the gospel. I think it kind of left them feeling like I'm never doing that. I can't possibly do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Whereas we can just kind of back up and say, okay, well, what did, what did Jesus do? He went about blessing the people in places that he came across every single day. And then if we give them some simple tools that really do reflect what Jesus did, I think we want people to walk away from this book saying, you know what? 
maybe I, maybe I can help someone find their way back to God. Well, I appreciate that the first um, blessed practice is to begin with prayer. I think that's so often left out. I'm pretty much on my own. I'm going to try to fashion this relationship in a way that works for me. We don't take the time to begin with prayer. And that's such an important element in blessing others as we're attempting to love them as we have been loved by Christ. Yes. And and I think you're right, Georgine, in that oftentimes we, you know, we say pray first, but really it's almost like, well, that's like your last resort. Our focus here is, yeah, begin with prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, when Jesus started his earthly ministry uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says he went out on a mountain and he prayed. Over and over again, we find Jesus retreating to pray. And so I like to tell people, if you're not sure who God is calling you to bless, like Jesus, begin with prayer. Uh, one, one way that I try to practice this is uh, in my journaling, and I try to you know spend some time daily in prayer and quiet reflection and journaling at the bottom of my journal, I have the letters B-L-E-S-S on the journal. And then below that, I have a list of names of people that I feel like are in my circle of influence that God is asking me to bless. And so now I'm not going to say do it every day, but most days I'm looking at that list and I'm praying for those people by name, asking God to give me opportunities to bless them. And I think it's important to note that by doing that, you're already blessing them. Like that actually counts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, uh, somebody challenged me one time with this thought. They said, you know, there are people that you come across every single day who have never not once in their lifetime had someone pray for them. And I don't mean, you know, stop them, you know, in the middle of the street, lay your hands on them and pray out loud. I just mean, you know, offer a simple word of prayer, even if they don't know that you're doing it. You know, I grew up in a Christian home. My mom and dad had been praying for me before I was born. And so we have an opportunity to really bless people, um, begin blessing them by simply praying for them. And I say, you know, if you don't know what to pray for, think of it like the golden rule of prayer. You know, pray for others as you would have them pray for you. Mm-hmm. A great way to start. So, yeah, begin begin with prayer. It's, it's, it's absolutely foundational. Uh, the second blessing uh, practice is to listen. And that sometimes can be hard for us because we're so anxious to share the good news because it's good news. We're not prepared to listen. And if we don't like what we're hearing, we may want to interrupt and interject or talk a bit about how we can bless others by simply listening and honoring them by listening. Yeah. You know, again, I go back to the life of Jesus. If you think about it and and, and read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, asking questions and then listening was central to his life and teaching. He asked way more questions than he answered. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, one researcher found that of the 183 different questions Jesus was asked, he answered only a handful. Most of the time, what would he do? Respond with even more questions of his own, <laughs> sometimes even to a point of frustration for some people, I think. But uh, the truth is, listening may be the kindest and most loving gift you can give somebody. Uh, you know, I was even thinking about this, you know, during the pandemic, you know, as long as you kept your distance, you could still talk to people when you're out and about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we underestimate the value of listening and just how desperate people are for a listening ear. I think we've all had those situations when you're talking to somebody and, you know, they are so dialed in. You, they, they make you feel like you're the only person in the room. What a gift that is. Because we've also been in those situations where you're talking to somebody and it's, it is so obvious they're either looking past you or they're already reciting in their mind what they're going to say next before you even get the words out of your mouth. Yeah. And just this whole idea of listening, it's so powerful and it, it paves a, uh, a great path for us, I think, to, to share the gospel. 
You know, I appreciate you reminding us that Jesus didn't answer every question. Sometimes we are fearful of being asked something we don't have the answer to because we think we have to carry the conversation. And what you've described is a genuine interest in other people that relieves us of the burden of having to uh, to carry, you know, the whole relationship and the whole conversation. So that is relieving in and of itself uh, and, and valuing other people. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think if we could just put ourselves in the, in the in the shoes of the other person, we all love to be listened to. And so why not just offer that gift that you enjoy experiencing to somebody else? Absolutely. Again, the book we're talking about, Bless, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. Dave and John Ferguson are the authors. The next on the list is Eat. Now, that might be somewhat intimidating to some of our listeners as well. If you're used to hospitality, inviting someone into the home, or um, you know how to manage that, uh, that may seem like, oh, the, the, a great thing to do. But for others, that can be a little bit intimidating because we feel like we have to have it all together. Talk a bit about how we love our neighbors well um, and and how eating together uh, can facilitate that. Absolutely. And again, you know, I, I go back to the life of Christ over and over again. We find Jesus, you know, with tax collectors, sinners doing what he's eating. And I think it's because he knew there's something special about sharing a meal that has a way of moving almost any relationship past acquaintance uh, towards friendship faster than almost anything we can do. I mean, how, how many of us have had that experience where, you're, you have an acquaintance and then either they invite you out to eat or over to, your, over to their home or you connect somewhere over a cup of coffee or dessert and suddenly someone who you just sort of felt like you sort of knew as an acquaintance, now it's your, your friends. And I think it's just something that happens over a meal. And it's, it's not surprising when you think about how central meals were mm-hmm. to the life of Jesus. I mean, the, the, one of the things that he left for us to, to, to repeatedly do over and over again, what, 2,000 plus years later is to share a meal, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the, and the cup, right? To remember his death and resurrection. So sharing a meal is a powerful way to, to bless the people around you. And, and something you touched on, Georgine, if I could real quick. Yeah. What I think is important about these blessed practices, particularly this one on eating, is we're really not asking people to add anything to your already busy schedule. I think most of us eat, I don't know what, three meals a day, seven days a week, about 21 meals a, a week. Some of us more, <laughs> some of us less. <laughs> Maybe throw in a dessert or two. Uh, what I would challenge people to, and we have tools in each one of the chapters of the book that kind of help you walk through this, is instead of eating those by yourself, just look for maybe two opportunities throughout the course of your week, two of those 21 to include somebody else. And don't you know, create this elaborate dinner you know, meal that you have to prepare go out to eat or just do something really simple. Share a salad. It, it, it's really just about being together and sharing that meal rather than by yourself, you know, do it with somebody else. And it's a great way uh, to bless them. Yeah, it really is. It's so meaningful to be invited into someone's either home or circle to just share a meal. It's, it's such an intimate uh, opportunity to get to know one another a bit better. Now we're just about out of time in this segment. Can you give us a few more minutes if I take this break? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Again, we're talking with uh, John Ferguson. He's the co-author, along with his brother, Dave, both in ministry. The book is titled, Bless, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. And I have to tell you, it is so practical. I could do this. I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
If you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, I'm continuing my conversation with John Ferguson. Uh, The title of the book that he and his uh, brother Dave have authored is Bless, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. You know, during this period of pandemic, we've had a couple of new neighbors move into our neighborhood. And so much time has passed. I'm a little embarrassed that I haven't done what a, a good already in the neighborhood person should do, and especially a follower of Christ. I haven't gone over and introduced myself. I haven't brought a, you know, a cake or something. I haven't done any. This book has inspired me to say, you know, we're in a season right now where it's very comfortable to begin something that maybe should have begun months ago, but to begin something that could uh, develop into a, a wonderful relationship and friendship and an opportunity to extend the love of Christ and maybe even share the gospel. So this book is is very timely and very practical. We haven't really talked about the structure of it, but you'll find that it's very practical in, in answering the question, is this something I could do? And the answer is, and I can say with confidence having the book, yeah, any one of us can do this and make a real impact in our in our neighborhood and with our neighbors to love them well and to change the world. Um, now we were talking about the the um, practices, the uh, bless practices that allow us to do that. Let's talk about the next one, which is serve. Um, we have tremendous opportunities to bless one another in this season. How do you suggest that we serve our neighbors in an, our effort to love them well? Yeah, well, a good question. You know, I, I think. Uh, the order of these, if I could just back up a little bit, yeah. is important. Too. So you begin with prayer, you listen, you eat, and then you serve. You know, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And I think he modeled for us, too, that if you will sort of follow these steps, that you will then discover how you can best serve the person or people that God is asking you to bless. Because, you know, praying, listening, and eating together helps you get to know that person. And it really ensures that the serving is about the person being served and not the person doing the serving. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of reminds me of um, the love languages. Most of us are probably familiar with uh, Gary Chapman's book, where yes. the important thing is to learn um, the other person's love language and love them the way they need to be loved, when our tendency is to love people the way we want to be loved. <laughs> and I think it applies here. It's important to understand uh, you know, how your neighbor, how that person you're wanting to bless um, needs to be served and serve them in that way and not in a way that you necessarily want to. Uh, I, if I could, too, you know, you mentioned your neighbor. It's interesting. Um, an example where I, I think I might have got it right this one time. We had some new neighbors moving across the street. We live on the north side of Chicago. And my wife had mentioned that she uh, introduced herself to them and found that the gentleman works for the Red Cross and that he's working super long hours uh, because he was a part of a team that came to Chicago to help increase the number of vaccinations that were available for the um, for the COVID, uh, you know, the pandemic. And uh, it's like the next day I was at the bakery and there's this bakery has this incredible bread that we love to buy. It's uh, oh, what kind of bread is sunflower seed bread. Strange, but very, very good. And so I, I go into the bakery and I'm looking at the shelf and I notice there's two loaves of bread and there's just something in me. And I'd like to think it was the spirit of God saying, you know, buy both loaves. You're going to give one of those to somebody. I didn't know who I was going to give it to at that moment. But I went in and bought both because I figured, hey, you know, <laughs> if I don't give it to somebody, we've got two loaves of really good bread. And uh, on my way home, though, I was praying about it and kind of asking God, well, you know, who should I? And that neighbor came to mind working at the Red Cross, overtime hours. Why don't I just walk over there and say, you know, what? my wife told me you're working a lot of hours. I just want to say thank you for your service, you know, helping out our city via the Red Cross with these vaccinations. I was at the bakery. I thought of you. I want you to have this loaf of bread. Hope you like it as much as I do. Not a big deal. Took me maybe 10 minutes and an extra $5 for the loaf of bread. You know, I don't know where that's going to go. 
but I think it was a neat way to almost combine the eat and the serve. Yeah, <laughs> I was serving yeah. them by giving them um, something to eat. And, and, and that's how it works. Sometimes, you know, it's about the people that are on your list that you're asking God to help you know how to bless them. And sometimes it's just being sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit for those moments when you have a chance to bless somebody impromptu. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. The last in the um, blessed practices is um, is a story where you have the opportunity to share your story. I think sometimes there's such a sense of urgency. We want to kind of blurt it out <laughs> prematurely um, because it's it's important to us. It's, uh, you know, our walk with Christ and experiencing and knowing his love has been such a tremendous blessing in our life. We want to share that with others. Uh, talk a bit about the 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 fifth in the practice of story, when we share ours, how we go about it, the timing and all of that, and address that sense of urgency that we may have that sabotages our relationship that we're building. Right. I, I think that's a, that's a really great point you make there, that the urgency is good. That's what, that's what kind of drives us or prompts us to want to share the love of Jesus with our neighbors. Uh, but I think that sadly, many people have felt like maybe they're being like sold. Uh, it's like a sales pitch rather than um, coming across as a, uh, a real genuine sort of authentic reflection of the life change that you've experienced and what you know they could experience in a relationship with Christ. And so that's why, again, I think it's important for us to begin with prayer. You know, listen, just listen and, and don't talk. Mm-hmm. Christians are so known for talking. We need to be known for listening. Mm-hmm. Eat, share meals, look for ways to serve. And then finally, when people are ready to listen, I think that's when we share the story. I think that's how Jesus did it too. I mean, like when doubting Thomas came to him asking, okay, Jesus, how can we know the way? And then Jesus said, well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, a relationship with me. And so I think when you befriend and bless people, over time, they will feel relationally safe and want to know your story. Then you can tell them how the love of Jesus you know, his life, death, and resurrection, how that has changed your life. And even then, keep it simple. You know, just share with them. We have this in the book, three steps. Your life before you chose to follow Jesus. You know, what was it like? How you chose to follow him. What were the circumstances around that? And then finally, your life since following Jesus. What difference has it made? And I think in that third part, it's important to be honest, too. Share share the good stuff and share the challenging stuff. The ways that, you know, God has really come through for you in in remarkable, if not miraculous ways, but also share those places where you're still kind of struggling or working through it and trying to figure life out like most people. I think people really, really appreciate that authenticity. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't seem like an opportunist. You never read in scripture where Jesus seemed like an opportunist. I'm going here. Uh, just I'm just waiting for my moment. And I'm going to you know, jump on. He was genuinely concerned and interested in people. He was genuine in his approach. And I think that first practice of beginning with prayer and the last practice, which is sharing your story, are so inexorably linked that if you're doing the first, then you're not going to blow the, the last because your timing is going to be guided uh, not just by your sense of, OK, here's my moment. It's going to be guided by the Holy Spirit who says their heart is open. Um, and this is a moment for you to share just this much of your story. Story. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, it's, um, it's interesting. I had when I moved to the north side of Chicago a number of years ago, I found out that a friend of mine from high school lived like two or three blocks away. And so um, we started getting together, talking a little bit, started praying for him. I felt like I was trying to listen. We shared some meals. I found out the best way to serve him really was to simply listen to him because he was going through some really difficult times relationally, vocationally, etc. Uh, that's probably been 
over the course of about seven or eight years. And has he ever really, I mean, I've shared my story with him, so he knows, you know, the difference that Jesus has made in my life. And just recently, he actually started going to an alpha small group with me, but he has yet to really commit his life to Jesus. That's like seven or eight years. And, and you know what, that's where I'm saying, God, yeah, I want him to, but I think that's, you know, that's kind of where I got to let the Holy Spirit take over and I'll do what I can and let God take it from there. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Now, where do we begin? I know as I'm sitting here, uh, I'm broadcasting from home today. I'm thinking about specific neighbors. Where do I begin in this effort to bless um, my neighbors and to love them well, as uh, the book suggests? How do I begin, first of all, by identifying who God is calling me to to reach out to? Well, I think it's exactly what you're saying there. I think there's a couple different ways. One would be to go ahead and think about those people that are in your circle of influence. And it you know, in some situations for some people, it's, it's about proximity. It's about geography. Mm-hmm. It's those people that live next door to you across the street in your neighborhood. It could be, you know, especially as, you know, workplaces begin to move back to the office or on site, wherever that might be. It could be that person that you're sitting next to, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week that God has put in, in your path that you could begin to think about how to bless. And And I would encourage you, like I know a lot of people have that are, you know, putting these practices into play is make that list, make that a part of your regular um, journaling time and begin praying for, for those people. And then if you, if you have a circle of other Christ following friends, I think another great way to do this is make that a part of your conversation when you're getting together. If you're part of a, a small group Bible study or discussion group of some kind, when you're together, ask each other, okay, who are you blessing this week? And if you show up and your way of blessing that week was by praying, well, good, that counts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't say I only prayed say no I prayed I prayed for you know two or three different people this week and then I would also say um, like I mentioned earlier make that kind of an ongoing prayer throughout the course of your day God help me to know who I can bless today and look for those sort of impromptu moments that you might not expect where God gives you a, an unexpected opportunity to bless somebody yeah, and he will certainly honor that. Well, there's so much more that could be said about the uh, about the book. One of the things that you suggest is that when we uh, purpose in our hearts that we are going to to bless our neighbors, and we've identified uh, who those people are, that we um, we are held accountable by others. We let other people know, a couple of friends uh, know that can help keep us accountable, so that we we do move forward and experience uh, the joy of blessing others as we extend uh, love and joy to them uh, through this commitment. Yeah, I, I think doing this in community is a great way to go. I mean, not to reinforce <laughs> the opportunities that we have in the book, but we do have resources available. If anybody wants access to that, like small group guides, mm-hmm. uh, videos that kind of help them train people in this, they can find that at bless-book.org. We'd be happy to help in any way we can. Excellent. Well, again, the title of the book is Bless. Uh, five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. I know it's going to certainly influence my practice here in this area. Uh, John Ferguson, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to talk with us about it. Oh, completely my pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It was really fun. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I had mentioned on yesterday's program that the Justice Department is investigating the Southern Baptist Convention. And the question is, why? We know the issues that they're looking into, but why is the U.S. Justice Department 
looking into those issues with regard to the church. Well, the nation's largest conservative Protestant denomination revealed on Friday that they are, in fact, under investigation by the Biden administration over claims of sexual abuse and harassment that they had dealt with through a process we're probably all quite familiar with. Ben Johnson, writing on the subject, pointed out that the federal probe by a a, a persistent church critic raised eyebrows that came amidst a flurry of actions opponents say are intended to punish the president's political enemies, including an unprecedented FBI raid on the former president's home earlier this week and the passage of a bill that critics contend would allow rogue IRS agents to target conservative Christian organizations. Well, the Southern Baptist Convention, which has 13.7 million members and more than 47,000 churches, announced that the Justice Department inquiry just months after releasing an independent report on sexual abuse claims. They were dealing with the issue. The SBC Executive Committee recently became aware that the Department of Justice has initiated an investigation into the Southern Baptist Convention and that the investigation will include multiple SBC entities, the Executive Committee disclosed in their statement. It was released on Friday. Individually and collectively, each SBC Southern Baptist Convention church um, entity is uh, resolved to fully and completely cooperate with the investigation, they went on to say. Well, the 14 signatories said that they continue to grieve and lament past mistakes, recognize our reform efforts are not finished, and asked for prayer. And before I continue, I would uh, ask the same, that as part of the body of Christ, a branch you may or may not be a part of, we need to be in prayer, because this not only has to do with a particular denomination or a, a specific set of churches, it has to do with the name of Christ and his reputation and the work the church is called to do in the earth. Well, you might recall that the Southern Baptist Convention outsourced a report that examined how the executive committee handled sexual abuse reports between the years 2000 and 2021. It was uh, commissioned and given to an outside firm, Guidepost Solutions. They reported in a 288-page report back in May that one member of SBC's executive committee compiled a list of 703 people suspected of abuse, but never released it publicly. The report records 703 abusers, but notes curiously that only 409 are believed to be SBC affiliated at some point in time. So that's not altogether clear. Well, the uh, convention subsequently printed a list of 205 pages of pastors, church workers and volunteers credibly accused of abuse, a list it notes that includes cases that resulted in an acquittal. The report redacted the names and some details of those found innocent or not accused of sexually um, uh, impropriety, resulting in some um, some entries with every detail blacked out. Well, both the executive committee and guidepost, again, the organization they commissioned to uh, help them in their investigation, took pains to point out that as a voluntary association of independent churches, the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't ordain or impose church discipline on local pastors. The report states that due to the Southern Baptist's congregationalist method of government, the SBC could not or should not take certain actions to address sexual abuse within SBC local churches, end quote. The report, however, induced 44,000 people to sign an online petition that demanded a government investigation. Well, both the timing and the method of the Department of Justice investigation has raised questions among observers. And the timing, of course, uh, raises questions as well. Well, a former Justice Department official who asked for his name to be withheld, speaking to the Washington Strand, 
that he said that he finds the Department of Justice's wide ranging investigation into multiple Southern Baptist Convention entities novel and dubious. He struggled to identify a federal statute that could be used to target a religious entity for such a capricious investigation. I'm using his words. The investigation seems even more unusual because sexual abuse investigations are typically handled by local prosecutors. The key question is, what civil or criminal statute is the Department of Justice using as the predicate for this investigation. Well, the Biden administration has frequently flouted constitutional authorization in the past, defying the Supreme Court by attempting to continue its eviction moratorium last fall. The Supreme Court stopped the executive action, saying the CDC had exceeded its legal authority. Last November, OSHA attempted to impose a vaccine mandate on private businesses that employ at least 100 people. The Supreme Court similarly ruled in January that the administration had no legal grounds to impose such a vaccination mandate. There's something of a precedent for the SBC investigation, a 2018 investigation into Roman Catholic dioceses in Pennsylvania, which was carried out by the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. But the former Department of Justice official underscored that uh, that investigation appears to be narrower in scope than the Biden Department of Justice investigation into the Southern Baptist Convention. Again, quoting the Department of Justice investigation fizzled in 2019. It ended with one arrest, an 82 year old defrocked priest. Bill Donahue of the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights told the Washington Strand in an exclusive interview. One reason the Department of Justice probe went nowhere is because Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro, now running for governor, had just finished a witch hunt grand jury investigation that did nothing to punish any wrongdoers, but succeeded in smearing many priests. I sued on behalf of 11 priests who had their reputations damaged and won. Well, unless the Justice Department is time... uh, Uh, Barred from getting alleged offenders, Donahue told the Washington Strand that there's no statute of limitations on harassing and intimidating the Southern Baptist Convention. They're very good at that, referring to the Department of Justice. Their actions can be costly in terms of legal fees and the reputation and credibility of the uh, convention's leadership, end quote. Well, the former Department of Justice official who was part of this uh, Washington Strand Uh, Peace uh, said that while he understands many people instinctively support any investigation into the horrors of sexual abuse, it's dangerous to support any investigation uncritically, especially when it involves a Justice Department that has enormous hostility toward a religious organization like the Southern Baptist Convention. I worry about this kind of thing from this department, the official told the Washington Strand. They do not take a fair minded approach to the law. If uh, if it were up to the Department of Justice leadership, they would mandate Southern Baptist churches perform same sex marriages or cease to exist. And it goes on from there, uh, but raises some very significant questions. He points out that the Obama Biden administration solicitor general Donner, Donald Varelli admitted during the Supreme Court's 2015 Obergfell versus Hodges case that the tax exempt status of religious nonprofits is certainly going to be an issue when justices impose same sex marriage on all 50 states. Stripping churches of their tax exempt status proves more difficult, but the federal government may be seeking alternative means of targeting Christians who uphold traditional biblical morality. And uh, the, uh, uh, the breaking of the commands of Christ and the scriptures provide the opportunity for them to sweep in and perhaps do other uh, other things. Again, I would encourage all of us to be in prayer for the uh, Southern Baptist Convention and this effort by the Department of Justice 
that justice would, in fact, be done. And if, in fact, there are ulterior motives, that they would be prevented in moving forward. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.